0: From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival.
1: Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I'm your host, Nicholas Ibarra, and we are doing another one of our patented Gimme Three episodes. Give me three favorites from 2020. What a year it was. And we're keeping it in the family today. I am joined by music producer, sound mixer, and he produces a great podcast called Film Forward. His name is Anselm Kennedy. Anselm,
2: thank you so much for being on your own show today. Thank you. It's great to be on this side of the mic for a change.
1: Yes, hell yes. And my other guest is LADFF Festival Director. She is a member of the Producers Guild of America. She is also the love of my life. Miss Sonia Maru from the other room. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's lonely here in the other room. Thank goodness I have the dog sitting on my foot.
1: Yeah, it's lonely in this room. I ain't got nothing. That's true. I was, I was
0: good. Yeah. I was like, I guess you're the lonely one.
1: Yeah. I got a typewriter uh, that smells really old. You know, those machines that just smell like the 50s? You know, you opened up something that's like been in a garage for ages and ages, and it just got that old person smell. Yeah, yeah. That's what I have to keep me company here.
2: It's like you've got your grandparents there in the room with you.
1: Yeah. So, you know, 2020, we're discussing our favorite films from the year 2020. And before we dive in, I just want to quickly get both of your input on watching movies in 2020, because obviously we couldn't really go to the theater, which is very unfortunate and heartbreaking. But Anselm, what was it like for you just movie-going experience, watching new movies in 2020. What was it like for you?
2: That was something that was a challenge when putting together our list for this episode is that the majority of the year, I didn't watch a lot of movies that came out this year. I fell into a spiral of watching really bad B-movies and old nostalgic movies to kind of keep me going. And it just was a very different, movie going experience this year, one that I don't particularly like, but it was definitely different and a change of pace from previous years where there was lots of theater going and premieres and and just experiences that we didn't get this year or last year, I guess. And Sonia, how about you?
0: For me, it's really hard to have the same emotional experience at home compared to what I have in a theater. Mm -hmm. So I got to watch a lot of movies, which was cool. But I definitely felt that the way that they sat with me on like the long term wasn't as deep as if I had seen them in the theater, which is a bummer. But hopefully some of these, I mean, it was great to watch older movies. I didn't watch a lot of B movies, but I did watch a lot of older movies. Hopefully like some of these movies, like what we'll be talking about today will be in a theater in some way in the future. So I can appreciate them there one day.
1: Yeah, it, it was tough. I mean, usually I'm going to, as both of you know, going to the theater three to four times a week, you know, half of its repertory screenings and the other half is like, you know, seeing something new. So as far as new films go, this was the year I probably saw the least. Also, there's probably the least amount of new movies that came yeah. out because so many got pushed. So yeah. it's kind of like, uh, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg. But I will say the movies that. I did see this year were really good for the most part. And we're going to talk about those right now. I'm really excited about all of our picks. So we're going to start it off here. Anselm, we're going to start with you. Give me three favorite films from
2: the year 2020. Your first one is... My first film is Palm Springs, written by Andy C R and directed by Max Barbaco. This is a movie that if you're... Lucky enough to know nothing about, you should go in as blind as possible to really experience it to its full potential. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'd advise you to skip ahead in the podcast. And hopefully this will be the only one of mine that really delves too far into spoilers. But I think this movie is hard to talk about without really knowing more or less the plot of it. Oh, yeah. For those that have seen it, don't plan to, or don't care about spoilers, the movie is centered around Niles, played by Andy Sandberg. Who, first off, I'm a big Andy Sandberg fan. So I was going to see this movie regardless of whether or not I liked the plot, but I did very much enjoy the plot. Niles has inadvertently gotten himself stuck in a time loop. Groundhog Day style, where no matter what he does, as soon as he returns to the cave that started the time loop, falls asleep, or dies, he wakes up to the same reoccurring day. The story develops further when he seduces our other lead, Sarah, played by Kristen Miliati, through a series of whimsical and dazzling feats clearly brought on by Living the same day hundreds of times previously, the wedding scene where he's dancing and wooing her is one of the the greatest scenes in the movie that really kind of gets you into the stage of the film. And then they are in a desert near the cave that started it all and the antagonist of the film, Roy, who's played brilliantly by J.K. Simmons attacks Niles and kills him, but before Niles dies a slow, painful death, he crawls back into the cave and Sarah falls behind, causing her to be stuck in the same never-ending day as well. One thing that I love about this movie is that it's known from the very beginning what the world is. You get roughly five minutes of possible uncertainty before the day resets for the first time. And I think that's a necessary choice for them to have made in writing it so it doesn't feel like a Groundhog Day or other time travel, time loop movie ripoff. The stakes are there from the beginning and it only gets more intricate as you find out that there are other characters involved in this time loop as well. I know both of you have seen it. What are your guys' thoughts?
0: I will say the first thing is Kristen plays the mother on how I met your mother. And that's like one of my favorite shows of all time. So like your automatic love of Andy Samberg, Mm -hmm. the second I knew she was in the movie, I knew that I was going to like it and that at the very least her character would be like a blast. And I thought that they were both just so like fun to watch and so likable while also having like major, major character flaws, you know, that maybe they figure it out in the end. Maybe they don't. But (laughs) I just thought it was like so likable and fun. And yeah, like it was cool to see a Groundhog Day-esque movie where there were other people in on it, because I think that that made the learning that you have to do like more significant yeah, than doing it on your own. And it
2: also ramps that learning up a lot quicker so you don't have to go through a montage of Bill Murray killing himself 1,500 times.
0: Yeah, like they kind of like were able to take advantage of the fact that probably everyone has seen Groundhog Day or at least is like familiar with it enough that they could like stand on that film's shoulders and not like be repetitive. Yeah. But like take it to like the next step.
1: I was lucky enough to go into this blind, even though I was really late to the game and seeing it. It was sheer luck that I that I hadn't got any spoilers. All I knew was that it like took place at a wedding. That was all I knew about oh, the film. That's amazing. So I went in and like the first five minutes, I was like, This is this movie's wacky as hell. Like what in the yeah, hell is going on? And then, you know, they show it to you and I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. I mean, yeah, it's got a lot of charm. The script is very tight. And mm-hmm. this feels like a film that's just really rewatchable, you know, like yeah. there's just a lot of laughs. It's really light, but, it, you know, it's got moments that where it gets heavy. It's got a lot of heart and it's just really creative. I could see this movie kind of like Groundhog Day standing the test of time where it's just like, oh, if that's on TV or if I go to somebody's house and that's on, it's like, perfect. I'll watch this. This is It's entertaining from
2: opening credits to end credits. It's it's a lot of fun. I know that I wasn't a part of the films that embody 2020 episode, Mm -hmm. but I think this would have also been my pick for that as well, which I think is one of the reasons that it's in my top three, because when we did talk about recording this episode, I put together a list of all the top potential movies for 2020, and I was crossing movies off that list, but they just weren't comparing to the movies I had already seen that had kind of already inadvertently made the list. And I felt like I was just chasing something. And that's something that Palm Springs did right from the get-go when I first watched it because it connected with me when it came out because we were relatively early in the pandemic. We had been on lockdown for maybe three and a half months and not really being able to escape and do what was quote unquote normal, we were kind of living in the same potentially bleak existence that the main characters in this movie do. And there's one scene in the movie that really clicked with me when I first saw it. Andy's character is talking to Sarah and trying to help her through like the coping of this is what we're stuck in. And he says, We're all fucking alone. We have to live. So I think your best bet is to learn how to suffer existence. Yeah. And something with that like clicked because we were all confined to our house, or at least I hope you were, because if not, you were contributing to the major problem going on in the world. But <laughs> we were stuck in our own like repetitive routine. And not really expanding our experiences, but the idea that you have to learn to suffer that really changed my outlook, at least on the confinement portion of the pandemic, and kind of led me to be more active in terms of getting things done and staying mentally sound.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it definitely, probably unintentionally, because obviously this film was made before... Right. The pandemic, but it definitely hit home when we're going through seemingly, sometimes it feels like we're just living, we're living in blurs day, you know, like what is it? God knows. And honestly, God, who cares? (laughs) It's a great first choice. It's a lot of fun. Palm Springs, it is available to watch right now on Hulu. So I highly recommend you check it out. Sonia, your first one.
0: So I actually realized that two of the films that I'm going to talk about today were not only released in 2020, but shot in 2020 as well. I don't think there was a whole lot of movies shot in 2020, so that's right. impressive. Yeah, so the first one I want to talk about is American Utopia. And it's um, kind of a concert slash, I don't know, Sermon on the Meaning of Life <laughs> by <laughs> David Byrne. I think first it was like a, an album and like a touring actual concert. And then it became a limited Broadway show, which is scheduled to come back in August of 2021, assuming that Broadway is allowed to reopen at that time. It's an incredible show that my mom actually got to see, and I'm super jealous of her. But the film version, which came out in October, is directed by Spike Lee. And it was shot over, it seems like, maybe three or four performances, maybe a week of the Broadway show. And I think what is super cool is like if you compare it to say Hamilton, which came out this year also, or last year, that's also like a filmed version of a play. They have like so much to take in because it's staged and there's like this large cast of like characters that have roles and blocking and all of this. But because this is a musical or it's music, it's of course very choreographed and very technically impressive. But, you know, it's dancing and the shots that Spike Lee got to come up with were just like incredibly cinematic, a view that you would never have if you were at a Broadway show, like close ups of people's feet and their hands and their mouths and like all of these great things that make it feel like incredibly personal to watch. And then, of course, the audio recording and the musicians are out of this world incredible. So it's just a all around Great experience. And I guess the other thing, that, I mean, maybe ultimately the most important thing is it's called American Utopia. And it's really just talking about everything that's going on in the world, in this country. There's a song where they say all of the names of African American people who have been murdered, either in hate crimes or by the police. You know, he really ponders like what humans are and why we are the way they are. Another way that it's Spike Lee was able to put this super cool twist on the experience you might have had if you saw it on Broadway and what makes it cool to be able to see it as a film, even if maybe you did see it on Broadway is that for this one sequence where they're saying the names of African-Americans who have been killed, like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Spike Lee shot people actually holding these people's photographs. So as the performers are saying their names. He's cutting to shots of the actual people who were murdered. And it makes it just even more heavy than it is anyway, just as a, a musical performance.
1: Yeah, that's really a uh, standout moment from from the piece. And it's extremely powerful. And you, f- you feel your heart kind of escape your body as you're watching it. It's heavy and powerful. It, it lifts you off of your seat. It's incredible. This is a really masterpiece from david byrne and and as you mentioned spike just captures it beautifully it seems like an odd pairing with you know when you think about it at first david byrne and and spike lee but by the end of it once it's over (laughs) you're just like god that was a match made in heaven it really was and i think it's like early on in this show david comes on and he explains the choice to eliminate any sets or any cables and stuff from the stage You know, the entire play or performance, if you will, is just David and the musicians, and they're all like carrying the musicians with them. Like, even the drummers have the drums around their neck and whatnot. So, he explains the choice to remove all of any fancy stuff, and he says, What's left? And it's us and it's you, the audience. That's what this show's about. And it's just a beautiful reflection on us as a society both the best of us and the worst of us, but it's honest and it's it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating to watch.
2: Yeah, I was never a big Talking Heads fan, so I don't necessarily have as deep of a connection to David Byrne as you do, Sonia. But the thing that stood out to me in the entire film, the interludes where he would come in and have these psychological connections to the world we're living in and then immediately just fall into the songs. I think that kept me engaged, but it also helped transition and helped you appreciate the songs that were following those introspections immediately after.
0: Yeah, he definitely gives you good context. I also realized I should say I can't remember the name of the song that lists the names, but it's actually a Janelle Monae song.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Hell You Tombow is the name of this song.
0: He even talked about asking her permission to do the song in his show. And obviously, I assume he would have probably had to ask her permission anyway. But, you know, acknowledging like, can an old white man take your song and make it their own? And she was like, hell yeah, if it's you, David (laughs) Byrne. (laughs) As Nick was saying about the set. You know, the way that they make it so you can't see backstage is the set is surrounded by like hanging chains, like metal chains. I mean, it's super beautiful and cool looking, but it's also, you know, I think very significant and, you know, psychological. I also just think the way that he can go from these incredibly heady songs, like the opening song is about like the human brain. And then he can, you know, bust into just like a straight up party. And then he's going back to like talking about the perspective of dogs and cockroaches and how like they <laughs> see the world in the next song and it's like completely seamless and but oh, yeah. it's like totally a, a narrative too.
2: Yeah, and I think that's kind of the interludes that I was speaking is that he just does such a phenomenal job of tying everything together. There's no wasted space. Every breath, every movement, every sound is tied together in the larger space. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: It is. It's a master, again, a masterpiece, I think, for Mr. Byrne. And I hope that I was going to say if I'm not going to be that negative when we're (laughs) able to get back to Broadway. I'm going (laughs) to I'm going to check this thing out because it is it's insanely powerful and uplifting and does all the things that you want a, a piece of art to do to you. That's how I felt watching it uh, from my home so I can only imagine what it's like seeing it live. So I'm looking forward to it. But until then, my friends, you can check it out. It is available right now on HBO Max. And one more quick shout out. We were referencing earlier the Film Forward episode of Gimme Three films that embody 2020. One of those movies is called Whose Streets, which is about the Ferguson protests and Hell You Tom Out makes an appearance in that film as well. And it's equally as powerful. And in both films, it's just like you, you, you're going to have tears streaming down your eyes. But I just want to call that out. That song is incredible. And this movie is incredible. So check it out. HBO Max, American Utopia, directed by the legendary Spike Lee. Who might make another appearance on this episode.
2: It's a solid possibility. (laughs) It wouldn't be a film forward episode if you personally don't drop a Spike Lee picture, neck.
1: I am a Spike groupie that is uh, guilty as charged. Okay, so my first one is, it was really challenging to pick the three for this year because I liked a lot of movies. And as we said, we didn't really get to see a lot of them in the theater. So it was hard trying to narrow it down to three because I liked a lot of stuff. So what I ended up doing was, I ended up picking three performances that just rocked me to the core. Three performances that I will never forget. So those are my movies this year. And the first of which is Francis McDormand playing Fern in Nomadland, which is directed by the brilliant Chloe Zhao, who's quickly established herself as one of the best working directors out there today. So, Nomadland, Fern is a quote unquote nomad. She moves, she travels around the American West in her van, going from job to job. And through her journey, we find out more about her past, why she's doing this. But also through her journey, we get to meet all these people. Beautiful and rich characters, you know, these other nomads who go from place to place and they're just kind of going with the flow and living a life that is, for the layman, is so foreign and alien to us, but seems in a lot of ways so beautiful. The thing that's really cool is the majority of the cast in this film are non actors, they are real nomads and they are all incredible. Some of the most powerful. And beautiful moments and monologues from this film are done by real people. And you can tell that there is a lot of truth that is being portrayed on the screen. Like, these are the real people pouring their hearts out. Chloe out and Francis collaborate on this role of Fern, and they bring up questions about life that you didn't even know you had, man. It is just a gorgeous, gorgeous character. It is a beautiful film, top to bottom. And my only regret about this movie is not being able to see it on a big screen because this is just one of those movies where you're driving down the road one day and an image from this movie will pop into your head or you meet somebody that reminds you from somebody from this film. And it's just like, this is a movie that will stick with you. And I couldn't say enough positive things about it.
0: Yeah. I don't know if Anselm was able to watch Nomad Land, but... I think what's super cool about Nomadland, and I actually talked about this on a previous episode of Film Forward, is that the movie is huge and vast, but also so personal and such a quiet, intimate story. And I think that that's Chloe's, one of her biggest strengths is that she's able to like do that simultaneously without any effort or at least it seems totally effortless. I think it'll be super cool to see her take on like a Marvel film with that same sensibility because I think for me that's the small intimate stuff is what Marvel tends to lack for me personally.
2: I have not seen the film yet. But it is at the absolute top of my watch list. It's unfortunate that I didn't get a chance to see it yet to be able to talk about it with you guys. I do believe that that might be changing soon. I might be able to see this in the next couple of days, which I'm really looking forward to.
0: It's tricky how um, because... I get screeners from the Producers Guild. I'm actually didn't even realize that a lot of the movies that I loved the most in 2020 haven't technically come out because they're still in some kind of like limbo world yeah. of release. Like Promising Young Woman
2: is another one. Although that one's actually out now. That one came out. Yeah, that for had that a had wide a, uh, release on Christmas. So yeah. that, that oh, one's okay. actually out. But two thirds of Nick's list is uh, <laughs> <Not out>. unavailable <laughs> films. But they will be out soon. Yes.
1: February 19th, Uh, it will be available at drive-in theaters and it will also be coming out on Hulu on February 19th. And I believe in some places where it's allowed, it is actually getting an IMAX release starting at the end of January, which by the time this episode is out. So check wherever you are. If you've got an IMAX screen that is open near you, wear your mask wear your face shield whatever you got to do this is worth it this i think is worth a movie that is worth seeing in IMAX because it's just absolutely gorgeous and you can see the American West in a way that i don't think it's ever been photographed before
0: or the inside of a van
1: <laughs> yes you'll also see <laughs> on the a very of, large screen <laughs> yeah you'll see the inside of the van as you've never seen it before on IMAX <laughs> <laughs> Chloe's out god bless you if you're listening to this then uh a um so awesome, because that'd be sick. But also, just congratulations, because this is a beautiful piece of art. Absolutely. If true. she's
2: listening, she should definitely be a guest on the podcast. That's true. And if if you're
1: listening it. to this, call me. <laughs>
2: three. We'll bring you on. Uh, <laughs> Pro- we'll, we'll probably cut your phone number from the podcast.
1: <laughs> I, ain't got no, I ain't got no haters. <laughs>
0: uh, just email at nicholas at Ladf.com. There you go. That
1: works too. That's probably easier. Okay, cool. Before I give out my social security number, let's go (laughs) back to Anslam. Your second choice, my friend.
2: My second choice is The Queen's Gambit, created by Scott Frank and Alan Scott. It is the story of a child chess prodigy and her rise to mastery while battling personal demons of her childhood problems, addiction, and the cost of what being a genius is. It is based on a book of the same name and the character, Beth, who is the lead in the series, is loosely based on Bobby Fischer's life, who was also a child chess prodigy that faced inner demons on his rise to chess stardom. Beth is orphaned as a child. She grew up in a religious orphanage where she discovers the game of chess taught to her by the orphanage's janitor, a character named Mr. Seibel. Uh, She also battles with addiction early on in her life brought about by tranquilizers that are given to the children to make them more manageable, which is something that feels very 50s-esque, which is the decade that this series begins in. And she is, she's a strong-willed child that doesn't take no for an answer, which You can see in some of her first interactions with her mentor while learning the game of chess. And that desire and eagerness to learn is something that she deals with throughout the show, resulting in her growth of confidence and ability to beat her opponents with this intelligence that she has. She's
1: like the Aaron Rodgers of chess.
2: (laughs) She is. She is the show is however not solely about chess as it might appear on paper there's there's a short like mini documentary wrap up kind of behind the scenes on netflix which they seem to be doing with a lot of their hit shows recently which i like a lot but in that mini doc scott frank talks about how they tried not to focus on the actual chess playing as much as rather the reactions that the players are feeling in that moment because their reactions really reflect the stakes that are at hand and the emotions that are tied to the games and how that would relate more to viewers, especially those that aren't familiar with chess. And I think that's kind of what makes this series so special is that you... Don't have to be invested in the game of chess to appreciate the series because it's more about the character's internal struggles while like striving for greatness as a woman in a predominantly male dominated sport at the time. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's just fantastic about this show is the visuals. The production design is top notch, the sets are just so meticulously put together and really shine and make you feel a part of the time period. In this series, you feel a part of it. You feel like the characters could be somebody that you know. and It feels very real and intimate. And I think that's one of the reasons that this show stuck with me. And this is actually my favorite series or picture of the year.
1: Yeah, I funny enough, <laughs> we've seen these... These films that have not been released to the public yet, but the thing that everybody's talking about, Queen's Gambit, I have not seen, but I have not heard a single bad thing from anybody who's seen this. Everybody has been singing its praises, so it is on my list. It is at the top of my list. And I am a huge Searching for Bobby Fischer fan. I loved that film. I didn't know so much of the plot. I just knew that it was about chess. So hearing you describe it makes me all the more intrigued. So I'm definitely going to check it out. And what is her name? Anna, Anna Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy. She's great in, in everything that I see her yeah. in. So.
2: The cast of this is another just shining moment of it. Anya's great. And the other standout is Harry Melling, mm. who... Began his career as Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter franchise and has just taken on incredible role after incredible role for the past three years. So I'm really excited to see both of their future projects.
0: It's cool. Yeah, I definitely want to see Dudley in a different role because ultimately his character is so memorable in Harry Potter, like that he, you know, he must be like a good actor, but it's so hard to like separate it from like. This character that's like just so abhorrent,
2: <laughs> right? Well, I mean, he's he's phenomenal in Balladbuster Buster Scruggs*. He's great in *The Devil All the Time*, uh, and he's wonderful in this. Like, he's just been kind of racking up really good performances recently.
1: Yeah, he got a little bit of space from the Harry Potter series, and now he's. I uh, mean, he
2: looks completely different. Yeah, so you would have to look up his filmography to really put it together that that's who it is.
0: He like grew into himself, probably. I mean, they're all so young. (laughs) Anya Taylor-Joy is like in everything right now and like Mm -hmm. so freaking good in all of it. So I can't imagine that she's not great in this. I actually saw a online conversation with the post-production team for Queen's Gambit in April. And they talked about all of their processes to get the show into post right when the pandemic hit and how like they had to hit this deadline and Netflix was like this show is going to be like a massive hit and like we have right. to like get it done in our time frame no matter what and so they were talking about all of the technology and like the processes that they used to make that happen like super fast cuz they only had like i think 3 or 4 months at most for post on the entire wow. series but they said that because they shot in Berlin and like so much was done remote anyway that that was actually like a huge help because they were like, oh, well, we're already used to being (laughs) like super far away from each other. Which is
2: what we're all so used to now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, super impressive to like be able to just like keep that focus and like figure out every problem as fast as possible and have such like a impeccable result.
2: It did come out at the exact right time for people to actually enjoy it. Because I mean, if it had come out while well, the world was normal, I don't think people would have taken a chance on a show about chess. And the fact that everybody's stuck at home probably contributed to its success, which is great because Netflix is kind of been so hit or miss in the past couple of years when it comes to their original content that it's great that they actually kind of struck gold with something here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kudos. Queen's Gambit. It's on my list. It should be on yours if you have not seen it. And it is available right now on Netflix. Check it out. Sonia, your second pick.
0: You know, it's funny. My second pick is also a show from Netflix. It's called Tiger King. Have you heard of it? (laughs)
1: No,
2: what's (laughs) about
0: J.K. I actually didn't watch Tiger King. No, my second film is called Never Rarely Sometimes Always. This movie, kind of the way that it came into the world, seems a little bit of a bummer because it was a huge hit at Sundance, and I think it came out in the theaters like the same week that the world shut down. So it was kind of it didn't get maybe the attention that it should have. So I hope that a lot of people have seen it or that maybe listening to this will inspire people to seek it out. We were at a screening of this the day that the NBA decided to stop playing. So it was like a very heavy and strange day. The reason why I picked this film, other than the fact that I really, really liked it and think it's important, is kind of the three movies I picked are dealing with the social issues that I feel super strongly about at the moment anyway. And this one is about abortion. It's about a high school girl in rural Pennsylvania who finds out that she's pregnant and wants to have an abortion and is pretty dead set on it. This doesn't really, this isn't one of those movies where she has a crisis of conscience or something. Like she knows that she doesn't want to have a child First, you see her go to like her local clinic where they don't support her choice and try to talk her out of it. And it's like really one of those places that promotes itself as a place where you could get an abortion. But they really exist to like talk you out of it, which is really, really common all over America. Unfortunately, the rest of the movie deals with her and her cousin who don't seem very close and definitely don't have one of those Giddy teenage girl relationships that we've seen in so many films. They have a strong bond, and they go to New York City with no money to get an abortion. And nothing is easy. It's extremely it's scary. Like you're worried for their safety because they're in New York alone and they don't know, you know, they're not necessarily super street smart. They have no money. They don't realize that. It's like a multi-day process to get approved to get the abortion. So they have to figure out like how to stay overnight. And it's just about this girl's, like, resolve that she does not want to have this child. And you see what kind of stakes women have to go through to get an abortion in America. It's certainly not pretty. (laughs) That being said, the film is, I wouldn't say it's a downer. I would say that in spite of everything I just said, The fact that our main character has this intense commitment to do what she needs to do and ultimately succeeds at it against all the odds is reassuring. And, you know, you feel satisfied on some level at the end. (laughs) Did you see it too, Anselm?
2: Yeah, I, I did. And to go off of that, this movie is just brutally honest and visceral. It's so real that it is, I mean, it's depressing. You feel like you are a day in the life of these characters, and you're following them around a fly on the wall, dealing with, at the beginning, the moral versus legal ramifications of this rural town teenager of how she can get an abortion. And it's an absolutely beautiful film. It's something that you need to see because it's a real-life problem that is had by many people around the world. And the score is phenomenal in this. It's so subtle yet impactful and kind of helps tie these day in the life of moments together in a beautiful way.
1: If, you're, if you don't want to spoiler, skip ahead a, a few minutes. But there's, there's one scene in particular, and it's actually where the title comes from, where the main character is being questioned by a counselor at Planned Parenthood about her Um, her history, her sexual history, and, and her personal history. And the way that that scene is shot, it's so simple. The director just leaves the camera on her face as she's asking these tough questions. And she's asking them with one of four answers, never, rarely, sometimes, or always. But with each one of those answers, the subtext of those answers is so clear and so apparent. It is a beautiful performance aspect. I just don't know how they were able to do that. The director and the actor combo, they really knocked it out of the park with that scene. And that scene was also shot at a real Planned Parenthood in Brooklyn. The counselor in that scene is a real counselor for Planned Parenthood, so it added that much more authenticity to it. But just the brilliant choice to just leave the camera On a close up on her face as she's going through her history with just one of four words. It is is remarkable filmmaking.
0: I think that it's in New York City. I think it's in Manhattan. (laughs) I used to walk by that Planned Parenthood every single day. And I remember talking with my mom as a little kid about what Planned Parenthood was and what abortions were and why it should be legal. That specific place has like an intense significance in my memory. And that's kind of where I I guess was pointing to with talking about the two girls' relationships. The movie doesn't really rely on the characters to give you exposition or background on their lives. Like you just are following them and everything that you're learning is just based on observing how they look at each other, how they deal with the various barriers that are in their way. And I think that that's why the never rarely sometimes always Scene is so heavy because we've never been told anything about this girl's past or how she got pregnant or why she doesn't want to have a child. And just by saying those words and looking at her face, we learn about her and she's kind of coming to terms with herself at the same time. It's super powerful without being showy or trying to like tell you what to think or, you know, what's going on. Yeah.
1: You're spoon fed nothing that the filmmaker has an incredible amount of respect for its audience. And for that, I say thank you. Thank you for making (laughs) an incredible film and not treating us like idiots because we're not, and clearly they are not. Never, rarely, sometimes, always, it is available to rent on VOD right now. Is it available? It's streaming on HBO Max. Yeah, I think it just came
0: Um, I just want to note that Never Rarely Sometimes Always was shot on 16 millimeter film. So I think that's another one of these recent, very low budget, independent films that is opting to shoot on film stock instead of digital, in part to preserve film history and continue film history, but also to uh, maintain the integrity of their film's vision You know, in the face of budgetary limitations. So I really like that.
1: Yes, also filmmakers like the color black, which are really hard to obtain in the digital. That's true. So never, rarely, sometimes, always. It is now available on HBO Max, I just found out, which is great. Available to the masses the masses should see it. Absolutely. still wonderful, wonderful film. Okay, my second film is The Father, which is directed by Florian Zeller, and it stars Anthony Hopkins, who is somehow getting better as an actor. I have no idea how that's even possible, but it's happening. And I cannot remember the last time that I saw a performance that destroyed me as much as this performance did. Anthony Hopkins plays an elderly man who's named Anthony also, who is starting to suffer from Alzheimer's. And his daughter is played by Olivia Coleman, who's trying to maintain her job, also trying to take care of him, which is, you know, doing both is almost an impossible task. But what makes this film so brilliant and what separates it from other films about people who are going through Alzheimer's is this film is told from Anthony's perspective. So characters come in and out and introduce themselves by the same names. You're in this this big apartment, and you don't know if it's his, if it's his daughter's, you are as lost as Anthony is in this film, but in a way that's not frustrating, in a way that's just mesmerizing. It's also a really frightening experience. The film is based off of a play, so I imagine that that's what the play was like also, is you're in that character's shoes, but that perspective makes this story all the more heartbreaking, all the more tragic, and honestly, just all the more scary. The production design, the camera work really add also to this like sense of confusion and misdirection. But as I mentioned, just the backbone of this film is Anthony Hopkins' performance. And there's one scene towards the end of the film that is just unforgettable. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I am not shy about crying a lot in movies because i it's just why I was born, I think. But it's very rare where a film makes me cry after I've watched it. Like I just will. Over the last few days, I like a scene will pop up in my head, and I just I will start crying. It's
2: wow.
1: It's also rare where I am at a loss for words, as as our listeners will know, and I'm kind of at a loss for words.
2: Thank you for not spoiling it, because this is a movie that I had never even heard of until I saw it on your list and immediately read the synopsis and everything I could about it. And it sounds phenomenal. Yeah. This is another movie that is right there at the top of my list as soon as I can actually view it.
0: That's another example of how 2020 was so weird in terms of like releases and like what we had access to and what was marketed to us in terms of like movies. Obviously, it's like two Oscar winners (laughs) are like the leads in this film. It's an expertly made film on all levels. And it's super like Oscar bait in just terms of its like, you know, subject matter. And I had never heard of it until we got the screener. So hopefully that is not the case for very long. In addition to being a beautiful movie, I think that it's important to reckon with these kinds of things, like what it would be like to care for a parent with Alzheimer's, even maybe more scary what it might be like to have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. These are all things that if we're lucky enough to live a long time, you know, we're going to deal with. The level of compassion and empathy for Antony's character that you feel. And, you know, and I think thus thinking of other people I've known who have had Alzheimer's or dementia, it just totally changed the way that I looked at it because it's just so confusing and so disorienting. I think without giving anything away, the movie kind of feels like a continuous day because Mm -hmm. like time and space and all of that seems to get lost. That's pretty intense. I
2: have a family member that's dealing with this currently. So I know this movie's going to absolutely emotionally wreck me, but I'm still just absolutely ready to watch it.
0: Yeah, yeah. we all love crying, right? Yeah,
2: yeah <laughs> it's, it's going to be ugly crying left and right. But if it feels like a continuous day, maybe you pair this with Palm Springs directly <laughs> following freaking Pete <laughs> brought that up emotionally. Totally.
0: So that's a double feature for you. But you know what movie I think goes, ha- I don't know if I'd watch them together because I don't know that I could like physically and emotionally handle it. But the movie that I feel like this holds the hand with is amore which was nominated for Best Picture, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And it all takes place in an apartment as well. And it's about an elderly couple and the woman is completely losing you know, her memory and, and sense of space and time. It's really told through her husband's perspective of what it's like to reckon with that kind of loss, but of someone who's still not only still there, but completely dependent upon you. And that is also a very heavy but very beautiful movie.
1: I think you know, as Ansel mentioned, you have a family member that's going through this. You know, everybody has or or will have a family member that has gone through this or a, or a friend of a family member, you know, something. So I think it's a beautiful film, as I said, so it's worth watching from that aspect, but it's a difficult watch because it's going to hit home with a lot of people. But as Sonia mentioned, the empathy that the filmmakers create for Anthony's character. And just putting yourself in his shoes, it can offer and shed some light into something that needs to be shed light on. I believe the film will be released on February 26th on VOD, and hopefully it's gonna get like some sort of drive in screens as well. The only information available online right now is a February 26th release. So, in the pandemic world, I don't know what that means. But for the love of God, check this film out because, like I said, Anthony Hopkins' performance is just unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It is incredible. And on that happy note, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we come back, I'm going to go cry in the bathroom for a little bit. But when we come back, Anselm, Sonia, and myself are each going to give our final picks for the year 2020. The happiest year of them all. Film Forward returns after this. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. All right, we are back on Film Forward, everybody. A Gimme Three episode. Gimme Three favorites from the year 2020. I am joined by our producer, Anselm Kennedy, and he has given us so far Palm Springs and Queen's Gambit. And we're also joined by LADFF director Sonia Maru. She has given us the films American Utopia and Never Rarely Sometimes Always. And I have provided Nomadland and The Father. And we are each about to give our final picks. Anselm, you are up, sir.
2: My third and final is The Sound of Metal, which is written and directed by Darius Marder, which I didn't realize until after seeing the film. He also helped write The Place Beyond the Pines, which mm. is another brilliant movie. Yeah and shares similar like aesthetic choices. But the movie is centered around Riz Ahmed's character, Ruben, who is the drummer of a metal band alongside Olivia Cook's character, Lou. And Ruben starts to develop hearing loss and very quickly into the film loses his sense of hearing. The rest of the movie is about the choices he makes, and how he responds to his new life without something that as a musician is essential. He's also a former addict, so there's a struggle for sobriety as well as reconciling with the fact that he may never hear again. This is a movie that I thought would be a slower burn than it actually was because I thought the movie was going to be primarily about Ruben fighting against his deteriorating hearing. But I mean, it's quite the opposite. It's about becoming a part of a new community, the deaf community that he joins early on in the movie to help him make sense of his new world and fight the urge to relapse. The Sound design is, as to be expected, phenomenal. It's deliberate. It's highly effective. And the cinematography is also amazing. It was shot on 35 millimeter, which I'm sure you appreciated. And actually, you mentioned that your three films were primarily chosen by performances. And I think to an extent, so were mine. But this one was the performance of the year for me, Riz's performance is the best I've seen all year and just the intimacy of this film really helped it land on my list of top three
1: yeah like you said shot on 35 millimeter I think you're underplaying the sound design and the sound mix like this is another one where I was just like gosh dang it I really wish that I was able to see this in a theater because of the sound design but maybe the second best experience was watching it with noise canceling headphones which Which is what I
2: I watched it on my setup and was actually happier that I saw it on my setup with my headphones and my projector and everything rather than be in a theater where you might have somebody to the left of you coughing or opening a bag of candy or munching on popcorn. I got to experience all of the sounds directly into my ears. It is completely
1: immersive, man. You know, it it feels like you're losing your hearing sometimes, like watching this movie. Oh, yeah. It is one of the most memorable sound designs I've heard in a long time. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows I don't give shit one about the Academy Awards. But if this doesn't win a sound mix or sound design award, I'm about to send them a bag of poop in the mail and you can take that to the bank. I'll contribute to that bag if it does <laughs> But they're
0: all working remotely now, Nick. So you're going to have to save a lot of poops and send it oh, yeah. to a lot uh, of people. There's no hey, central
1: office. <laughs> i gone vegan. I got plenty to go around. Sonia, what'd you think of the movie?
0: <laughs> uh, well, one thing I noticed is that there's a co-writing credit by the writer and director of Blue Valentine. and. I was like, man, this guy really seems to get these like codependent, intense relationships where like the relationship is the substitute for like drugs or other coping mechanisms. And I think the last third of the film, specifically when Ruben is reunited with Lou, was just so emotionally, it was just so heartbreaking and cathartic at the same time. I really loved that whole sequence that took place in Paris.
2: Their relationship the entire film is so interesting. When she leaves him for the first time is just as equally emotionally breaking. Their dynamic is something that helps this film. And it's so interesting that it it kind of bookends the film. It's there for the beginning and then it's missing for the middle. And then you have it to finally bring the film home.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think what was unexpected for me, which I really liked, was that I expected her to be the girlfriend that goes and finds a new drummer for her band, that he's the one that had this horrible life change, and like he's Mm -hmm. the one that's going to suffer and have to evolve and that like she would just kind of like go on without him. I don't know why that's what I expected, but that is. And so kind of seeing them come back together and like how much they really did love each other, but knowing that this relationship is doomed and that Ruben does kind of have to start from scratch in like all levels of his life. It was really great, even though it was hard to
2: watch at times. But she does move on without him. She just doesn't replace him, which I think is an important distinction for them to have made because she does move on with her musical career. She just does it on her own as opposed to getting a new drummer.
0: Yeah, totally. And she's like not insensitive To Ruben, you know, you feel like she would do whatever and make sacrifices for him if that was the best call. Yeah, which she
2: realizes at the end, which is why he ends it so she doesn't have to make the sacrifices because he knows that his life is not going to be conducive to her progressing along in her own life.
0: Yeah, for sure. I really liked the ending of the movie. I was kind of unexcited to watch it originally because I thought that it was going to be like you said about the process of him losing his hearing and him like trying to hide it and being angry and then her like breaking his heart. Maybe they should recut the trailer. I don't know, because I saw the trailer and that was what I expected. It was so not, that movie.
2: It was so much better. And I think that's one thing that really projected this movie into the top of my list is that it wasn't what I was expecting, is that it was fresh and new and just absolutely phenomenal. I got to see a and a for this movie with Riz and Darius, thanks to Sonia. And one of the things that was brought up that really stuck with me is the lived in feeling of this film. And I think that's one of its strengths. This is a movie that Darius had been trying to get made for a decade. Wow! He dedicated this film to his grandma, who was a part of the deaf community late in her life. Riz spent months before filming learning how to play drums and all the scenes that he does in the film are actually him playing drums. He learned American Sign Language so he could realistically communicate with many of the actors that were cast from the deaf community and several of the scenes where he's facing total hearing loss. They use these like special in-ear monitors to block out any sound. So his reactions are real. And this all just culminated to such a realistic aspect that I I think it was just a really accurate portrayal of what Ruben would have been facing with this huge life-changing event.
0: Yeah. And then add to that the fact that they did choose to shoot on film with like a super low budget, because he also talks yeah. about how he, actors may be exaggerate, but he would say like, I got two takes
2: <laughs> of yeah, every two scene. To, two to three takes. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's it's funny in that Q&A, he, Riz calls out Darius and he's like, you had more takes than that. We could have done it with more takes, but we only did two to three takes. And I think that's just because Riz's performance was so tremendous that they didn't need more.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, when you're shooting on film, when you got it, you got it, baby. No need to eat a dead horse.
0: Unless that's what you're filming. Uh, I was going to say,
1: unless you're Stanley Kubrick, then, you know, that's that's the money shot. hundred takes. I love the film. Uh, it's an excellent choice. Uh, I also just want to quickly call out Paul Rassi's performance. He plays the gentleman who's running this rehab center, which is for the hearing impaired. His performance is incredible. His character is incredible. He also was just an integral part of the movie for me and he was just a pleasant surprise. I didn't know that the movie was going to this place. Riz's character finding Paul's character, it just felt like a warm blanket and you just, (laughs) I just wanted to give him a hug when the movie was over.
2: Yeah, He's one of the characters that was taken from the deaf community. He was also an actor but not like a predominant actor and the fit was just perfect for the film. I
1: figured he had to have been actually deaf just because he was so natural and that he actually that, is not, oh, deaf. not no
2: he's part of the community where he's the connection between the the hearing impaired and people with their hearing so what he's playing in the film is kind he's, of his role in real life god bless him yeah
0: it says on his imdb that he was raised by deaf parents
1: yeah mm. yeah man Awesome. Just awesome. He's amazing. Sound of Metal, everybody. Check it out. A lot of people are talking about it. It's well-deserved. It is available right now on Amazon Prime. So check it out. It's incredible. And listen to it with uh, incredible sound. Listen to it loud because it's worth it. And Sonia, it's time for your final pick.
0: So my final pick is another one that was filmed in 2020 and released in 2020. It's super short. It's the stand-up comedy special 846 by Dave Chappelle. The backstory of the special is that he found a way to do stand-up comedy in a cornfield in Ohio, somewhere near where he lives. And so he was able to put together these like, outdoor, socially distant comedy shows over the summer. And I believe 846 was actually like the first one that was scheduled. And it just so happened to be about a week after George Floyd was murdered. So you see all the audience come in and anyone going to a comedy show, especially in 2020, you know, probably expecting to laugh really hard and, you know, forget all their cares. But Dave Chappelle is obviously not capable of ignoring what's going on. So the comedy show is ultimately about George Floyd's murder and then also just about being black in America today and specifically being Dave Chappelle. <laughs> um, a lot of it is about his own personal experience and how that relates to the larger world. It's less than 30 minutes long and it's, I believe, even on YouTube. So it should be very accessible. I Definitely urge everyone to watch it. I don't want to spend a lot of time going over the details, but the thing that stuck with me throughout the last six months or seven months since I watched the special was he talks about being in LA during the Northridge earthquake and how that was his first earthquake experience. And, you know, it was a big earthquake, obviously. It's something that, you know, people in LA still talk about to this day and it was, you know, really scary and he talks about how it lasted like 38 seconds or 40 seconds or something and how in that 40 seconds his whole life flashed before his eyes and it was, you know, the greatest terror he had ever experienced up to that point and then he says, you know, this, cop knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And George Floyd had to be aware that he was going to die for that entire time. And just comparing those two 30 seconds to eight minutes and 46 seconds, I don't know, something about that has just stayed with me and was such a profound and upsetting observation for Chappelle to make. Um, Then he also points out that that was the time he was born. Like I said, he likes to bring it all back. He brings it back to himself a number of times in the special.
2: That's when the tone shifts in the whole thing. When he brings up that he was born at 846, that's when it goes from potentially being a comedy special to being completely Social commentary, which is what I think this needed to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if he just went up and like did his mask wearing bits and hand washing or
2: (laughs)
1: pretty irrelevant? I don't want to say too much about it, because as you mentioned, Sonia, it's 27 minutes. If you have not seen it, watch it. Like, if they're going to watch one thing of any of the things that we're talking about right now, watch this. And especially watch it. When the protests were happening this year, and when the protests have been happening in last year and the year before that, because Black men just continue to get murdered in the streets, a lot of people, sometimes my family members or close friends who don't really understand the Black Lives Movement They will ask me because I'm not as nearly as big of an activist as I should be, but I I like to consider myself an activist, but they will ask me like, what, what? I don't understand why they're still protesting or I don't understand why they're out in the streets or I don't understand why they're smashing windows. Watch this and it might give you some insight. If you don't understand why people are protesting in the streets, I don't even blame you because you live in a country that has been demeaning black people for the entire history of this nation. But- Chappelle illustrates it beautifully. So just go watch it. It's available on YouTube. It's free.
2: Yeah, it's available to the masses. We've talked about movies that aren't out yet. We've talked about movies that are hard to find. This is something that's important and readily available to the general public. Watch it. Mm
1: -hmm. And makes a nice segue into my final film, which is another Spike Lee joint. uh, And it is called De Five Bloods. And there are two performances in particular that I'm going to highlight. First, I'll give you a little bit of the plot. The Five Bloods follows four Black Vietnam veterans who are returning to Vietnam to retrieve a stockpile of gold that they hid during their tour. But they're also coming to return their fallen brother, Stormin Norman. Back home who died tragically in the Vietnam War. So these returning vets go on this adventure to find this treasure, which they are meant to use as a form of reparations for their people back home. That was what Storm and Norman wished to happen with this gold. It's a wild adventure tale, but it's also mirrored with these men during the Vietnam War. We see footage of them in the war, and we see these men in action, we see Storm and Norman in action, not just as a soldier, but as a moral leader. They looked up to him. They keep on saying he was the best of them. You know, he was their Martin Luther, and he was their Malcolm X. So the two performances that I want to talk about and highlight are Delroy Lindo's performance. He plays Paul. Incredible. And Chadwick Boseman, the late, great Chadwick Boseman's performance who plays Storm and Norman. Delroy Lindo, who plays Paul, is just he is a broken man in this film. He's got PTSD. He has a just a broken relationship with his son, and he has intense trust issues. Throughout the film, we find out the source of these mental issues as the film progresses. And spoiler alert, it ain't all from the Vietnam War. The war at home has a lot to do with what this man is going through as well. He has been exhausted of all options, so much so that now he is a full-fledged MAGA hat, wearing black man, Trump supporter. And for anybody at home who's curious as how Donald Trump got more votes with minorities in 2020 than in 2016, by a lot, watch this movie because it might provide some insight. America, you need to wake up because we are breaking our men and women in more ways than we know. Delroy has this monologue at the end of the film that will just obliterate you. And switching gears now to the late, great Chadwick Boseman, this film was released maybe a month or so before his passing. And as soon as he passed, I thought about this performance and this character because he's just, it's a beautiful character. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, uplifting character. But the way that Spike shoots this man as just an angelic figure rewatching it, which I just did this past week, it holds even more weight. Every time he's on the screen, I just, your eyes fill up. It is a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful send off to Chadwick, and it's just an incredible performance. It's an incredible character. The other thing that I really love about this film is I am very anti-war. I am not a fan of war. I, I don't endorse it at all. But I am a fan of war films, um, and they are kind of like there's always two kinds of war films. There's like these anti-war films that show the the brutality of war and how awful it is and what it does to the men and to the people afterwards. You know, there's that kind of war film. Then there's also, you know, especially from the 40s and 50s and maybe even early 60s, you have like these heroic war movies where they portray uh, the soldiers as heroes. You have these big grandiose scores as they're out there on the battlefields and they're fighting for, you know, their country. This film gives you both of those. It shows these black men as the heroes that they were fighting for their country that had no respect for them. And you get this grandiose score and you see them out there doing their thing and fighting for their country. You know, Black men have not gotten that in a film. Spike gives it to them. But he also shows what this war has done to these men, what it's done to their friendships, what it's done to them as people, and what it's done to you know, relationships beyond the war. You know, it's broken fatherhoods. It's it's a whole bunch of stuff. This film, I really loved it the first time I watched it. I loved it even more the second time I watched it because I was able to pick up on so much more that I hadn't picked up on the first time. And this film is my favorite of the year 2020.
2: I don't have anything else to contribute to this conversation because you covered it all with your recap. Delroy's performance is phenomenal. That monologue at the end is extremely special. I wanted to ask you if watching this film after Chadwick's death impacted the way that you felt about this film, but you also wrapped that up. I personally don't like war films. This isn't a film that I would watch with my own choosing. I think the only reason I watched it was because it was one of your picks. Mm -hmm. This is a, a unique and special film. And even though it's not something I would necessarily rewatch, I think it's powerful, you need to watch it, and it's unique in only the way that the Master Spike could do. Yeah.
1: I
0: think that the things that Nick talked about, especially the performances, were definitely something I took away as well. But when I thought back on the film, the thing that came to my mind was landmines. Yeah. And landmines are just like a huge part of the story it's like why some of the characters are in vietnam it is unfortunately the cause of a character's demise (laughs) um and they play into the plot in a bunch of different ways i was curious nick if you had the take on what that means besides that there are landmines in vietnam
1: well one of the characters in the film the character who's Her job is to find and remove landmines. She says, wars never end. You know, even when the enemy leaves, there's still traces of the war there. And in here, it's the landmines. So we can see that for these men, the war has never ended. They are dealing with some stuff, you know, even though, you know, we're whatever, 50 years removed from this, the war has not ended for these men. And the war has not ended for the country of Vietnam. And there are these symbolic landmines that are there that still end up being the demise of some of these characters. All of these characters, spoiler alert, meet their demise still at the hands of this war. And that is something that I think a lot of veterans in this country constantly having to deal with in more ways than one. It's impossible to simplify. The remarkable thing about this film is that Spike somehow. From the beginning, from the opening montage, he shows what's going on in the country through the late 60s and early 70s with the Vietnam War and what's going on politically. He connects it all the way to 2020 with Donald Trump and MAGA and what it's like to be a black man today, what it's like to be a black man in the late 60s and early 70s. And in one film, he's able to draw all these strings and draw all these roadways. It's a remarkable feat. It's again, it's something I wasn't really able to pick up on the first time I watched it because there's so much plot happening. It's a plot heavy film. It's just like twists and turns and all this is happening. The second viewing was when it really all started to make sense to me. So I'm excited for a third watch and I can't say enough good things about it. But as Ansel mentioned earlier in the episode, I am a Spike groupie, so perhaps I am a little biased, but I freaking love it. And if for nothing else, you know, like it's got a kick-ass Marvin Gaye soundtrack. So, you know, if you're not into war movies or you're not into Spike Lee, you are into Marvin Gaye. And if you're not into Marvin Gaye, then you need to turn the podcast off
0: and
2: unsubscribe, baby.
0: And
1: that's how we lost some
2: listeners. (laughs) There's a lot of documentary elements to this film, but also a lot of fiction. And a lot of storytelling elements. And this is a film that has so much going on for it that I almost wish that it was broken up into a documentary about something during this time and right. this fictional movie. There is a lot going on in this film. And I think that's what a lot of the criticism from the people who watched this was that people said that it's potentially slow and boring and maybe could be two different movies. I was very surprised by how engaged I was the entire film. It's just when it shifts into telling a history and we're telling this fictional story, that's what took it out for me. But I did really enjoy a lot of stylistic choices. I love the aspect ratio changes when you go back into the flashbacks. I thought that was a phenomenal way to really differentiate between what is the movie and what is their history.
1: Yeah. For sure.
2: And I, I do want to call
1: out, as you said, this movie is pretty polarizing. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, it wasn't for them, which is understandable. I mean, Spike's style is Spike style. It is unforgiving and it's overt and it's in your face. So, you know, I can totally understand if people don't respond to it. You know, as both of you know, and as any regular listeners know, I have lately been infatuated with the 60s. I've been lately infatuated with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, just trying to make sense of the year that was 2020. So this film, I think, made a lot of sense to me. If you're not really familiar with the history and all that kind of stuff, I could totally understand how it's a a lot to take in because you're like, you're getting a history lesson, you're getting an adventure story and you're getting like an allegory of what it's like to be a black man going through a war. It's a lot, but if it works for you, which it did for me, it can explain a lot about where we are in this country. The Five Bloods, it is available on Netflix. And I hope, I truly hope that when theaters open up, it gets a little theatrical release because that is another thing that I really wish that I saw this film in the theater. And if for nothing else, it is worth checking out for Chadwick Boseman, one of his final performances. And it's just really, really beautiful. Those are our picks, friends. 2020, you know, it was an odd year for movies. When theaters open back up, which is hopefully sometime this year, let us pray. I highly implore anybody who's listening to this, go back to the theater because the theaters are going to need us. Obviously, we love our films and we think uh, they are an important medium of art and not only art, but they offer a lot of truth. So when theaters open back up support your theater, especially your independent theaters. You know, go to your AMCs, go to your Edwards if that's what's closest to you, if that's all you have access to. But if you've got independent theaters near you, visit them because the film industry, more than the film industry, cinema is going to need our help coming out of this pandemic. And that's what I want to leave you all with. Anselm, Sonia, thank you both for helping me out as we discussed our favorite films of the year. Thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Two very different
1: reactions. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Film Forward and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward and you'll hear us next time.